Reading from 1 Thessalonians 5 and the verse number 12. And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their works sake. And be at peace among yourselves. Now I exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, he also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with an holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And amen. May God bless his word. And let's at this time bow together in a word of prayer. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for the congregation of the people of God, for their gathering under the word of God, for the blessing of joining together in prayer and in praise of, of your so great name. And we ask, O oh Lord, that this day you would now come in an unusual fashion. Help us to consider the word of God and to study it through and then to seek to apply it in our lives. And may this be a word in season to this congregation and a word in season to every heart. Oh, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. Speak to us in the word, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, this time I think it's probably uh, beneficial that if I explain to some degree, what brings me here uh, to Orlando once more this weekend? As our brother Bumpy mentioned, uh, I'm serving at the present time as the interim moderator of the church here. And that term will be familiar to some, but perhaps not to all of you. Interim means this is temporary. It's important to remember that at the very beginning. Uh, my task as interim moderator is to, as quickly as possible, put myself out of a job. The moderator refers to the role of someone overseeing the church session. Uh, a moderator is someone who chairs uh, some form of church governmental authority. So there is a moderator for presbytery. That's not my job. But he oversees and moderates our presbytery meetings. My task in this congregation is to serve as the moderator of the session here in Orlando. I say it's an interim post because in the will of God you will in due course Come to elect and call a minister of your own. I'll go back to Malvern and shiver in the cold, uh, and you will enjoy the blessing of God here under a man of God that you will choose and elect in due course. And so it has been the purpose of our presbytery to appoint me to this role, uh, at the same time as appointing Mr. Banfi to serve as the intern. An internship is the final stage of training for the ministry under our presbytery, uh, the intern uh, spends some time under the supervision of a senior minister. 
Ordinarily, they will serve under a minister in the same congregation. But given the situation here and in our presbytery, it was determined that we would come up with this particular scheme. That I would come and uh, work uh, in the work here. Uh, Mr. Bunthy would serve as intern and I would oversee his internship while I'm in Pennsylvania and he's down here in Orlando. So that's part of what brings me here uh, today, and I, I trust in the will of God I'll come back sometime in the spring. In the meantime, Mr. Thomas and Walters and myself, we, we communicate via Skype or some other of these modern technologies. But all of that is significant, because it brings to our minds what the future holds for this congregation. What actually happens next? Well, at this time, you are not in a position to extend the call to a minister. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, it would not be, it would not be right and proper to call a minister under Mr. Bamfy's nose. He's appointed here as an intern, and he's here until uh, he, re- he reports to Presbytery back, or in, in May of next year. And so he'll be here in the will of God until he attends presbytery in May of next year. And in that time, it would not be, it would not be advisable for the church to appoint a minister under his nose. At the same time, it should be recognized that Mr. Bamfy himself is not eligible to be called by this congregation at this present time. All of those words are important. Until he completes his internship, he cannot receive a call from this congregation or from any congregation. He must complete his his training and his internship as part of that training prior to his licensing. And so it is our purpose, Mr. Walters and myself as the acting session, it is our purpose to uh, present a report of Mr. Bunthy at the May Presbytery of next year, at which time in the will of God, ordinarily, unless some disaster happens, ordinarily he'd be licensed. At what point he is then eligible to be called by this or by another congregation? Uh, one thing that I hope has been made clear to you, and it is clear in your minds, is that Peter, Mr. Bamfey, coming as intern here, he comes with no guarantees. You're under no obligation as a church to call him as your minister. And he's under no obligation to accept that call were you to call him. This internship comes without strings attached. It is a provision of God for the work here at this present time, but it does not necessarily guarantee any future pastoral ministry. I say that just so that we are all realistic regarding the, the methods and the practices of these, these things. But I say also that it is likely the case that when we come to our May Presbytery, that we will, as a session, request permission of the Presbytery to hold a meeting to call a minister. At that meeting, you will be entitled to vote for Mr. Bamfey if he's licensed or some other minister. And so that's the procedure and that's the way things go and they work out going forward. So after the May Presbytery, it would be our hope in the will of God that we will then that time hold a congregational meeting at which point there will be a voting uh, for a new minister and a call extended to that new minister, whoever that may be. And so, I think it's important that as your interim moderator, I address a particular issue today. And one thing that must be understood is that those who will vote for a future minister, they must be in communicant membership of the congregation. Because you attend here 
does not give you the uh, does not give you the right to vote in such a meeting. It is part of our book of order. It is part of general Presbyterian government that those who vote for a minister must be in communicant membership. And therefore, I thought, well, I'd better explain what that's all about. Why we hold such a view? Is it biblical or is it man-made? It's not man-made. It's an entirely biblical position regarding the matter of church membership. But here again, I must be careful. You, you preacher, I have been, I've been mulling this over my mind for quite a few weeks now. Because what I don't want you to ever think is that you should join the church simply to vote in a meeting to call a minister. That will be the worst outcome of this meeting this morning. That you would simply come to your mind, well, I'd like to vote for a future minister. Whether it be you, you happen to like Mr. Bamfi or some other man, you think, well, I want to be part of that vote. Therefore, I'm going to join the church. Please, if that's your mind, put it out of your mind right now. That is one of the benefits of membership, but that is a very shallow view of membership if that's all you think it contains and involves in the Scriptures of Truth. And so, I want to speak today on the subject of church membership and what that actually involves. I want to think about the blessings and the responsibilities of those who are in membership of a local church. But one thing I should say again. In our denomination, founded in 1951, It has been the distinction that there are those who were adherents or congregational members in distinction from communicant members. Now that distinction is is not not held so fastly here in North America as it might be in the UK. But if you're in the UK, one of the practices is if you happen happen to have your appendix out, or something like that. You end up in hospital for some, for some matter. They will come around and ask you, what church do you belong to? Well, in our denomination, it was felt that there were those who were part of our church. But they weren't saved. They didn't know the grace of God. That They hadn't come to saving faith in Christ and drawn from their sins. But they were still part of the church. So they were allowed to name our church as their church. And they were viewed as congregational members or adherents. But they were not in communicant membership. Now, what I'm discussing today is this matter of communicant membership. Now, that's, that's an old Scottish term. Scottish Presbyterianism. And it came across here, of course, as those came across here as the pilgrims and after that in the Presbyterian movement into North America. The term refers to those who have the privilege of receiving the Lord's table. It also speaks to those who may be excluded from the Lord's table due to sin. And so that term was used. Now we use the term more broadly than that, but that's what I mean by the term. It's an old term that denotes a level of membership in the church that is reserved only for those who profess faith in Christ and are walking in fellowship with the Lord. So if I use that term, that's what I mean. You're a believer and you are presently walking in fellowship with the Lord. That's what we mean when we refer to communicant membership. But let's go back to the very basics. Let's today begin with what I've termed the basics of church membership. If you like, church membership 101. What are we thinking about here? Well, I am referring to membership in a local church. That means I have a particular view regarding the word church. I don't view church as a building. You're in a church building, but you can be in a church building without being in the church. 
And so when you see the word church used in the New Testament scriptures, it is not referring to the building, it's referring to the people. But as the word church is used in the New Testament, it is used in two distinct ways. At times, the word church refers to what we might term the universal church, or sometimes known as the invisible church. It refers to the saved, those united to Christ in all ages, those on the earth and those in heaven. It refers to all those for whom Christ has died. Christ loved the church. Written to a church in Ephesus, but clearly referring to something broader than the local church that met in that city. I don't think they read Ephesians chapter 5, and it says Christ loved the church. I don't think they read that and says, oh, he loves us and us alone. It's a broader term that refers to all those who are saved by God's grace. That's the church. But turn back, please, to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, and you'll see here that the word church is used not only in a universal way, but in a local fashion. And just by the way, you can quickly glance to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, and you will see there in the testimony of Paul that he persecuted the church of God. Again, that's not referring to him persecuting an individual church. He went from Jerusalem to Damascus. He, he had a broad scope of his ire. And we see here he persecuted the church as a universal term. But then look at 1 Corinthians 14 and the verse number 23. What it says there, if therefore the whole church be come together into one place. I'm not going to deal with the context of the issues here. I'm just simply drawing your attention to those words. If therefore the whole church be come together into one place. Now that is physically, humanly an impossibility if the term there is referring to a universal church. Referring to all those from Christ has died. They, they cannot until the last day. And the last day they will all come together in one place. But until that day, this is referring to a local gathering of people under the term the church. And it's that church that I'm referring to today. And so if you go back now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you will see the concept of church life is given to us in the words of verse number 12. What it says there, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord. And here's a clue, and we'll say more of this later on. It's a clue that indicates that Paul has in mind a gathered body of the church. Back a few pages, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. And you will see here Paul refers again to a local church, this time not Thessalonica, but Philippi. And it says in Philippians 1, verse 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Here's one verse that summarizes church government. There are the saints. They are at Philippi, and with them are the bishops, a term for the elders, the pastors, and the deacons, the other office of the church. So what is a church? It has bishops, elders, it has deacons, and it has saints and members, and they are distinct. It doesn't say to all the saints, including the bishops and deacons, but with the bishops and deacons. There's a distinction here between those who hold office and those who are part of the congregation. Doesn't mean the bishops aren't saints. 
but it's noting the point that there is organized government in the church, a distinction between the office bearers and those who are part of the church membership. And so, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 would make no sense if there wasn't this particular structure. There are those who are over you in the Lord. And so the New Testament teaches that the church is made up of a group of members who exist under the authority of eldership. If you want me to define a local church in those terms, that's what I would say. You say, what's a church? Church is not a building. There's a building, but it's not a church. The church is a group of people who believe in Christ Jesus and who are organized under the oversight of a biblically appointed eldership. And let me show you this now at this time. Please turn back to Acts chapter 2. Uh, this is such, a, it's such an important issue in a day of confusion that we've got to get this clear. What is the church all about? What is a church? Well, Acts chapter 2 shows us that the church could be counted and added to. Acts chapter 2 and the verse number 44. And all that believe were together. And that group, verse 41, described in these terms, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Verse number 47. They were praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. There was a salvation experience. They came to recognize their sin and to run to Christ. And as they leave their sin and run to Christ, they are also added to the church. A body that can be counted. The same as in verse 4 of chapter 4. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of men were about 5,000. It's a very big church here in Jerusalem. As God bless and in Pentecostal blessing. But what I want you to see is that this group could be counted. Now, I appreciate it's an approximate number here. But even to get an approximate number, you need actually real people. Real people who can be identified and their, their heads can be discerned. But note, please, chapter 5 of Acts. Chapter 5 and the verse number 14. Chapter 5 and the verse 14. And it says there, Unbelievers were the more added to the Lord. Multitudes, both of men and women. You see, there are some. And they will say, well, actually, the issue of church membership is not about formally joining yourself to a local church. If you're simply added to the Lord, then you're a member of the church. Now, to that I say, amen. But I ask the question, what do you mean by church? Undoubtedly, all those who are saved are added to the universal church as they're added to the Lord. That's undoubtedly the case. The thief that died upon the cross never joined any church rule. But he was part of Christ's universal church. He, he went to paradise at the moment of his death. But yet there's a distinction here. Because whilst that is true, look at verse 13 says, And the rest durst no man or dared no man join himself to them. So not only was there an adding of them to the Lord, there was also a joining of themselves to the rest of the believers, the people mentioned in verse number 12. So there is, there is a church that can be added to and that can be counted. 
When you come in Acts chapter 14 to then see the appointment of elders, you see that elders, again, are those who are appointed from among them. Verse 23 of Acts chapter 14. And when they had ordained them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended the Lord on whom they believed. It is the teaching of the Word of God in Titus chapter 1 that we appoint elders from among the church. Therefore, it was a definable group. The elders were appointed out of a group, a group that could be defined, a group that could be quantified and explained, out of which come these elders. You'll see in Acts chapter 14, the verse number 27, that the church can gather together. We've seen this already. And when they were, they were come and had gathered the church together. Chapter 15, the verse number 22, this gathering of the church, then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. So all I'm showing you is that there is a definable group known as the church in distinction from the universal church. And when you think about this concept of church, there are two things that stand out regarding church membership. They are the matters of commitment to fellow believers and submission to elders. Let's think of those things in turn. We're thinking about the basics of church membership. To begin with, membership of a church is an expression of commitment to fellow believers. Turn back to Acts chapter 5. Acts 5. Acts 5 and the verse number 14, we saw the reference that the believers were added to the Lord. And then in verse number 13, they were not daring to join themselves to the church. And so there are two ways in which people are joined. There's a union with Christ. People are joined to the Lord. But remember, the Lord identifies himself with his people. Whenever Christ appears to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, he says to him, why persecutest thou me? Paul says, I'm persecuting the church. The Lord says, why are you persecuting me? Because there's an identification of the Lord with his people. And those who are added to the Lord willingly will identify themselves with God's people. There are those who believe that all that's important is that I profess faith in Christ and I can live my life in isolation. That's not taught in the New Testament. Those who came to know the Lord, they willingly committed themselves to be identified with God's people. They joined themselves together. So turn please to Acts 9 and the verse number 26. So these are the foundational principles. But Acts 9 and the verse number 26 Look what it says there. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Now the context here is that Saul of Tarsus, of course, comes to meet Christ on the road. He's gloriously saved. He then spends a time, we know, we know from uh, Galatians chapter 1, he spends three years away from Jerusalem. And then he returns to Jerusalem here in Acts 9, verse number 26. And as he returns to Jerusalem, he tries to join himself to the disciples. They say, he's already saved. Why does he need to join himself to the church? He's already part of the universal church. He's already come to faith in Christ. But here, here there's something distinct, something different in Paul's experience. 
He recognizes his responsibility to identify himself with the Lord's people. And the term that is used is this term joined, the same term used in Acts chapter 5. They dare not join themselves to the church. Here Paul is saying, I want to join the church. There was some procedure whereby he went along to the church in Jerusalem and says, I want to join this church. Right. They were terrified. <laughs> Understandably so. They weren't clear what happened to Paul. Barnabas has to fill them in with the story and encourage them. Yes, you, you can admit this man into your membership. That's what's in view here. The word join itself is a, is a very strong word. It means to glue. He wanted to cleave himself, to glue himself to those who believed in Christ Jesus. It speaks of commitment. Our local church membership is only open to those who profess faith in Christ Jesus. We believe with all of our hearts of the importance of maintaining a saved membership. That those who are joined to Christ and only those who are joined to Christ have the right to join the church in this formal way. Now, we will not. We will not do that infallibly. There are those who will join the church who are not Christ's. There are those who will play the role of the hypocrite and they will come for a time and appear to be a, a believer, but they will, they will fall away. And they were never Christ's. So this is not something we'll do infallibly, but it is the purpose of the church that it should mirror what is true of the church universal. So that church membership locally reflects church membership universally. So that those who are membership of the church locally are also members of the church universal. But it should not be, it should not be the contentment of any people to be part of the universal church without also being glued to local believers in a local church. It's what the Word of God teaches. If you are part of Christ's body universal, you will have a desire to be part of Christ's body locally. You will not want to live alone. You will not want to live your life in blessed isolation. There's a desire to commit yourselves to the people of God. And so you think of all the portions of the Word of God that speak about loving one another and praying for one another and caring for one another. There's a commitment, a commitment the one to the other in local church membership. There's also, though, a voluntary submission in local church membership. The word that's used in Acts or in First Thessalonians chapter 5 is the words over you in the Lord. That two words over you and the Lord, they actually are the same word used for rule in First Timothy chapter 3 and 5. The elders are those who are to rule the church of Christ. In Hebrews 13, Paul says, Obey them that have the rule over you. And what is the response to such that have the rule over you? It is to submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, they that must give account. This is the essence of church membership. It is a voluntary submitting of yourselves to the oversight of men that God has appointed to rule in the church to care for your souls. It is submitting yourselves under their care. And that's, that is what the essence of what our membership is. Well, how do I join this church? Well, you ask to. You make application to the, to the session. You say, I would like to, I'd like to join this church in membership. What happens next? Well, there's an interview process of some form or other. 
And whereby the session determined, yes, we believe this person has a profession of faith in Christ that is credible and discernible, and they're willing voluntarily to submit themselves to the elders of this place and to commit themselves to the other believers. That's part of what it is. And why, would, why do we do that? We do that in reflection of the Bible's teaching here. That there's a desire to join, to glue yourselves together with other believers, at the same time as submitting yourselves under the rule of those that have the rule over you. Church membership is not a higher level of Christianity, but it is not optional for the people of God. It is not something you can take or leave. Somebody said to me once, well, is there a command to join a church? Is there an explicit command? Thou shalt join a local church. So, no, it's not. But that does not mean it's not God's will. God gives his commands in a number of ways. We have commands of precept, thou shalt or thou shalt not. We also have commands of pattern. And I believe there is no need for an explicit command to join the church in the New Testament because it was simply assumed. It was assumed that the minute you profess faith in Christ, you also joined yourself to a company of local believers. It is a reflection of the chaos of our age regarding the confusion of the church that that has been allowed to slip so far. And that church membership has been looked at something of minimal importance. And that people can come and go for a church as they please. Come for a week, leave for a week. Come and go as they please. Visit all the churches in the area and spend their entire year, 52 weeks, visiting 52 churches. Nothing of that in the Word of God. There's this matter of wholehearted commitment to God's people and voluntary submission to God's leaders. Church membership is not membership of a social club. It is members of the local manifestation of the body of Christ Jesus. Are you a member of a local church? may not be here. You may be visiting here today, that's fine. But are you a member of a local church? You say, I don't need to be. I am committed to the church. I am committed to God's people. I am submitted to the church leadership. I'm not already. Good. But historically, that practice of commitment and submission has been shown in formally joining yourself to the church. So that people publicly recognize their voluntary submission and their determination to be committed to the other people. That happens formally. It happens publicly. So that if people say, are you a member of that church? Yes, I'm a member of that church. So that's something about the basics of church membership. And as I say, it, 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 is, it is principles that are drawn out of the Word of God. What about the benefits of church membership? Verse number 12. We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, I, I want to stay as close to the portion of God's Word here this time. There are a number of things that ordinarily are only true of members in a church. Church service is ordinarily restricted to those in membership. Teaching Sabbath school should only be those who are in church membership. Generally playing the musical instruments is a, is a, pre, a, a requisite for those who are, are, are in church membership. 
uh, various forms of service restricted, sorry, to those in church membership. Membership is intended to bring people into a caring family. That there is mutual love. And if you're a membership, those other members are saying, we will love you, we'll pray for you, we'll care for you. That's part of church membership and its benefits. It It is also the case, though, that to be in church membership is to bring yourself under the care of godly leadership. And I think that's one of the reasons why church membership has become so unpopular. People often live with the assumption that they don't need such care. They don't need such oversight or pastoral supervision. We, we can do it ourselves. I can, I can do it my way. But the Word of God teaches the importance of the labor of elders. Notice says, We beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you. In general, elders are to work and to labor for the good of the members. It is labor. It is work. What does that work entail? Acts 6. Laboring in the word and doctrine. Now you will benefit undoubtedly from some of those things by simply coming and sitting on the pew. But when you come to join the church, there is in the heart of a godly elder a recognition of their solemn responsibility. Out of Christian love, they will care for you no matter what your position may be. But there is added to that the obligation to members that they will give an account for your eternal soul. They watch for your soul as those that must give an account, says Paul in Hebrews chapter 13. So they have the task of admonishing you. The task of encouraging you. And when you go down to verse number 14 of 1 Thessalonians 5, you will see there are words that I believe are directed to the elders. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. I think that's a parenthesis, that's a, a statement in brackets that demonstrate what it is to admonish the church. There are those who are over you. There are those who labor among you. And they're going to admonish you. And what are they going to do? They're going to warn you. They're going to comfort you. They're going to support you. They're going to be patient towards all men. That's to be under great care. The church is not a place to come to some sort of entertainment station or preaching station. It's a place to be part of for the eternal well-being of your soul. And God appoints elders to care for you. They must be faithful men who will warn you and who will comfort you. They must be patient. They must not be short-tempered with the people's sins. They must be vigilant. They watch for your souls. They've got to observe. Who are the sheep that are weak? Who are the sheep that are unruly? Who are the sheep that are sick? They've got to discern the challenges of the flock. They've got to seek to work for the good of the church. In membership, what are you doing? If you're going to come and say, I want to join this church, well, yes, in part, you're submitting yourself to their authority. But you're also requesting their care for your soul. I'm a pastor, but I'm also under oversight. You say, well, you You, you oversee the church. Who oversees you? Well, we are part of a presbytery. I'm under the care of my presbytery. My fellow elders, they, they oversee my soul. I'm saying that to you because we all need oversight. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. I, I know Christ Jesus, the shepherd and bishop for souls. 
but he is pleased to appoint instruments on this earth to act as our shepherds and our bishops to care for our souls. And church membership is an honest confession. I need, I need men to care for my soul. But let's finish up today with something about the behavior of church members. This message today, it has, it has a lot to do with the future. It has a lot to do with where you're going to be in a number of months' time as you consider the future of this work here. Ordinarily, it's a message I wouldn't say choose to preach. There's many things I'd rather preach today in your hearing. But I believe this is a word that must be preached. We must all understand what it is to be part of a church. And there are responsibilities for those who are in church membership. Responsibilities that are not the dictates of me or a session, but that come from the very Word of God. And so today, if you are in church membership, let me remind you of your responsibilities. That not only is it a matter of blessing to your soul, it also carries certain responsibilities. In this chapter, there are five areas that come to mind. It doesn't cover every area of church responsibilities. There is no mention here of the giving of offerings. That's part of being a church member. It's not mentioned here. But there are five that I want to highlight. We are to keep ourselves spiritually. Paul says in verse number 16, Rejoice evermore. He's writing to a local church. And he tells the local church to rejoice evermore. You say, oh, preacher, I, I can't do that. I, I, I can't command myself to rejoice. Well, Paul says you can. He says it's the duty of church members to maintain a state of spiritual vitality, to guard discouragements, and to remember gospel blessings. If you are to rejoice evermore, Paul is saying, guard yourself from backsliding. You say, well, if I backslide, that's my business, and my business alone. Not if you're glued to other believers in a church. If you are glued and joined to other believers, when you fall away, it is as if part of their body is being cut off. Now, we may not get to that idealistic position, but that is where we strive to get to as little churches, that we are so glued to each other that when one member falls, we all feel that fall badly. And so Paul says to the church, you make sure you keep yourself spiritually. You make sure you, you keep yourself vibrant spiritually, that you rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the gospel. Make that your diligent practice. So therefore, if you're a church member, it is a very serious thing. If you go weeks and weeks without being in the house of God and worshiping together in God's house, it's a very serious thing. If you go day by day without applying the gospel to your heart, we are to rejoice evermore. We're to keep ourselves spiritually. We're also to keep the unity of the Spirit. Verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. But I want this. But it should be this way. But you're not, you're not caring for my own personal preferences. Look not every man on his own things, but on things of others. When you join yourself to local church, you are, you are confessing that you will care for others at your, own, at your own personal sacrifice. 
because you're going to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, you're going to be at peace among yourselves. But when the church divides, they bite and devour one another, says Paul. It's unthinkable for someone to start eating their own finger. It's a gross image, isn't it? And yet it so often happens in the church. We are also to give ourselves to a life of prayer. And these are responsibilities of church membership. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. In verse 18, in everything give thanks. In verse 25, brethren, pray for us. When you come to join yourself to a local church, you commit yourself to pray together, privately and corporately. There's a recognition that you're going to be thankful in the will of God. You're going to be consistent in the place of prayer. You join the church, that's what's expected of you. It's expected that you'll be part of the prayer meeting. Expected that you'll be part of the prayer fellowship of God's people. That's simply what is expected of church members. You're also to ensure that you seek to benefit from the word of God. Verse 19 says this, Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesyings, prove all things, hold fast that which is good. That's an interesting few verses. Oh boys, our time is gone. Time to go home. Not at all. You've got to think, what do these verses mean? What's going on in these verses? Quench not the Spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Well, it should be read in light of the context of the New Testament church. At this time, there is no completed New Testament scriptures. And thus there is still the practice of live revelations from God in the purpose of prophesyings. There are many who had that gift. The gift that ceases with the completion of the New Testament Scriptures. But at this point, there were those who would stand in the church and they would bring a word from God, a word directly from God. And such should not be despised. And the Spirit should not be quenched when the Spirit worked in such times. So how do we apply that today? Well, prophesying is also used in the Word of God for the general task of telling other people God's Word. There's a Puritan book on the work of preaching called The Art of Prophesying. A recognition that when a preacher brings the Word of God, they are in a sense prophesying as they bring the Word of God to your hearts. So, I tell you, you can quench the Spirit. You can come to church with such a bad attitude. Sorry, I'll speak American. Attitude. You can come with such a a bad attitude that you quench the Spirit of God in your very demeanor and in your resentfulness of something in the church. You come into this place and you quench the Spirit. And you think to yourself, well, boys, The preacher, he didn't do much good today, did he? And you may end up blaming the preacher. He didn't prepare hard enough, didn't pray hard enough. When actually the problem was in the pew. The Spirit of God was quenched in the pew. And God's people hindered the preacher from doing his job. Quench not the Spirit. You make sure you come with the right attitude as God's people. That you join yourselves together, ensuring that you individually will not hinder the blessing from others. That you will come with the right spirit to receive the Word of God. And you won't despise the Word of God. You're going to seek to benefit from the Word. 
Since you're going to come and hear the word, your, your preacher, I, I know Mr. Bumpy, he works very hard in the study. And he wants you to benefit from the word of God. So therefore, he wants you to be here because as he prepares, he has you upon his heart that you would receive the word of God and benefit in the word of God. Don't despise. Don't despise the word he brings to your soul. But benefit from it. Not only by your attendance, but by your attention to the word of God. This is part of being a church member. That together there's a corporate commitment to receive and benefit from the word of God. You also need to examine the preaching. You've got to prove all things. Don't just take what he says for granted. He could well be wrong. And we, I've had been his uh, supervising minister for a number of months now, and he's been wrong several times. I'm only, I'm only joking. <laughs> we are fallen men. We are fallible individuals. Church members have the responsibility to examine the word. And if he is wrong in his interpretation of the word of God, you're not simply to go away and ponder that and think to yourself, oh, our preacher's gone out of line. You must go to him. Ask him to explain himself. Why did you say what you said? Can you, can you prove that in the word of God? Perhaps I didn't understand you right. And if he's wrong, he can then stand here again and say, actually, I think I was wrong last week. Here's what I believe the word to teach. Does that ever happen? Very, very rarely. Because thankfully, by the grace of God, our men generally preach truth clearly. But at times, at times we may err. And at times we're too proud to admit it. But it is the duty of God's people to prove all things, and then to hold fast that which is good. So they're eating your southern fried chicken. You chip the meat and spit out the bones. And so it is. And so it is when you come to the Word of God. You've got to hold fast that which is good when it's true. And when you know it's true, you're going to buy the truth and sell it not. No matter what anybody says or does to you, you're never ever going to let it go because you're going to hold fast to that which is good. So Paul's preaching. He's talking about the importance of benefiting from the public ministry of the Word of God. He also says, lastly, he talks about cultivating diligence and personal holiness. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Uh, this, this has been very misunderstood. Some have used it, misused it to say, well, if it looks bad, you shouldn't do it. Listen, something is either bad or good. It's either evil or it's good. What Paul is saying here is abstain from evil in its every appearance. That's what it means. Evil, whatever form it takes, you abstain from it. And that form in our world will change. It'll change in its culture. It'll change in times. But if it's evil, it is the responsibility of God's people not to cozy up to it. Not to join along to it. We are not to fall a multitude to do evil. We live in a day when standards of gospel holiness have so far fallen that what was expected of a child of God 40 years ago is just totally forgotten now. 
But as God's people who glue ourselves together, we've got to resolve that by God's grace we will abstain from every appearance of evil, realizing that it's only by God's grace because verse 23 says, it is the God of peace who must sanctify us wholly. So what are you going to do? You're, you're a church member. You're going to keep yourself spiritually. You're going to make sure you don't backslide and fall away. You're going to maintain the unity of the church. You're going to give yourself to prayer. You're going to seek to benefit from the Word of God. And you're going to cultivate personal holiness. The high standard. Actually, it's not. It's simply what God expects of every believer. And this is what God expects of every believer. And therefore, simply, as a church member, be what you ought to be in the will of God. So, there's something I do when I bring members into the church in Malvern. As I, ask them, I ask them three public questions. And they have to answer this because I want the people to know that they are making a public commitment to the people of God and the work of God. So I ask them these three questions. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner saved by grace alone? That's where we're going to start. That's where I'm going to close today. Are you a sinner saved by grace alone? You say, oh, preacher, I'm a sinner, but I don't think I'm saved. Oh, how, how can I be saved? Well, you can be saved by getting to Christ. There is no other name given amongst men whereby you must be saved. It's only in Christ Jesus. And he's the one who's a savior from all sin. And so those who join a church, they will gladly confess, oh, I'm not self-righteous. I don't deserve God's grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace alone. And then ask them again, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Son of God? I don't want any Aryan in my church who denies the deity of Christ. You've got to publicly confess that Jesus Christ is Son of God and Savior of sinners. And do you receive and rest upon him alone in repentant faith as he is offered in the gospel? You've got to be saved to join our church. If you want to stand in the front of my church and lie, well, may God judge your soul. But when you come to join our church, I want you to understand that you are professing faith in Christ and in Christ alone. You hate your sin, but you love the Savior. And you've trusted in him and you're going to live for him. You must make that public profession you don't join the church simply by coming and sitting in the pew you don't join the church by being born in the church you've got to come into the church by professing faith in Christ Jesus and then I ask them one last question do you resolve as a member of this church in reliance upon the Holy Spirit to follow Christ fully to support this church prayerfully and financially in its work, worship and witness, preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, submitting yourselves to its session for the glory of Christ and His church. Church membership is not a light thing. I want people to understand that when they join a church, it's not simply to vote for a new minister. It is to commit yourselves to a life of faithful obedience in the work, worship and witness of the church for the good of your fellow brothers and sisters, and for the advance of Christ's kingdom. So I dare you, join the church. People in Acts chapter 5, they dared not join themselves. I challenge you, be what God would have you to be in this place. Be committed. Be determined. 
to be part of this fellowship and go forward from the glory of God. May God bless his word to your hearts today. Let's bow together in word of prayer.